0: impact investing at its core is microfinance. You cannot have more impact than than with microfinance.
1: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan.
2: Roger, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. You are a board member and the managing partner at Enabling Capital, an impact investment and microfinance advisory company based here in Zurich. Before we talk about your journey, we want to learn more about your personal background. You actually started business in Zurich. You also started working at Julius Baer's asset management team right during the financial crisis. And there you had a real aha moment when you were talking to a colleague about the Lehman brother bankruptcy what happened
0: yeah yeah, it was actually a changing uh, moment for me because i was having lunch with a colleague and he told me that everything will go down now and we will lose our jobs and we cannot finance our family anymore and i told myself or thought to myself that's not how i want to end up so i always wanted to have some side business that i'm not relying on other people's decision so i want to be self-independent and that's why i also
2: started uh, other business on the side uh, one of that businesses was organizing events. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where does that entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you already have that before that aha moment? Or was that really the trigger point that then pushed you towards entrepreneurship on the side? So actually, there are two uh, answers to that. So on the one
0: hand, we have a big and successful entrepreneurs in our family. One is my grandmother. Like 60 years ago, her husband died. My grandfather had a car accident when she was 37. So she became a widow with three kids. And she had not only to take care of the kids, but also to the company. So she had more than 100 employees from from one day to another. She had to take care of 100 employees and her family. And she made that quite successful. The company still exists and doing, doing very, very, very well. So I always had that entrepreneurial spirit in our family, thanks to my grandmother. And to your question about the events... Actually, I was uh, approached, I, I never thought I want to become an, uh, an uh, entrepreneur. I just was approached by a friend and who had the idea to do an event. And I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's let's start doing events. And after a while, we organized more than 50 events a year next to my normal job at Julius Bear Asset Management, where I flew all over the world, which was before the impact <laughs> impact
2: space. So how did you manage that? Because that's like one event per week, basically. Yeah,
0: exactly. So uh, the thing is, uh, I was never alone. So it was always a team. It was always a team approach, and once you get used to it, to to to, to spend time after your work to 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 organize these events, but it might sound tougher than, than it was because it was for me, it was a hobby. So I never felt like it was a work. I, w- I would go out anyways. And now I went out to do party and I earned money and I could inv- invite friends and, and colleagues for, for drinks for free. And so it was the best of both worlds going out and earning money.
2: That's a pretty good combination, I guess. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Have you ever thought about doing the event business full-time or, you know, reducing your workload in, in the bank and doing more, fo- putting more focus on the event business? No,
0: actually not. I always saw that as a side business and I still do one event uh, a a, a month, actually, before uh, coronavirus hit, uh, which is Saturday afternoon party. So not, but we still do. We are a group of six guys doing that. So um, it was quite successful. We have like 3000 people per event once a month, usually in Kaufleuten or some off locations on the lake. So I still do that, but still on the side.
2: I couldn't live off from just, just from the events. And economically speaking, you know, what impact did the event business have on your personal finances? Because I can imagine basically working two jobs, that also has some positive financial impact on your bank account.
0: Yeah, absolutely it did. Because usually you spend money when you go out. And I didn't spend money. I earned money while going out. So... Um, I could save a lot of money uh, back then, which is true because it didn't have high fixed costs. It didn't have family or anything. So I could save a lot of money, which I invested then in startups, real estate, which I think we talk about later. Um, And it still has a big impact because imagine if we do the afternoon event and the club would be empty during that time. So we have quite good negotiation power to tell them, look, we fill, we fill the, the room for you at a time where usually nobody's coming. Right. And now the turnover is bigger in the afternoon than at the excellent evening party. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Everything before Corona, by the of way. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: O- on a monthly basis, like how much uh, additional francs did you make per, per month approximately? Just you personally.
0: Yeah, f- I mean, it was, I-, I could say it was like 30, 40% of what my annual salary was at the bank, which I did on the side yeah, as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that was, That's a good
2: top off, like a nice bonus, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you also mentioned your family business that your grandma was leading. Uh, it's Divisa and Willisau. Um, I right. think most of the people know it probably from the the Troika Vodka, for example, or, or right. other similar products. Was it ever an option that you considered to take over the family business or why not? Uh, yes, uh, I mean, we t- well, I was too young
0: because my grandmother inherited uh, the company to my uncle, which we were ne- never in contact with him, so okay. we didn't have a relationship with him. And he decided because I think he knew he's not really the entrepreneur type. He decided to give it away to the to the CEO back then. So mm-hmm. that was never really an option, which is actually a sad thing because it's a hundred year old company. But uh, he had other plans with that, and so yeah. okay. But no
2: regrets that you didn't take it over. No, I
0: think I did another. I made another journey, and I would have to live in Willisau, I prefer, which is a bit on the land side. I prefer to live in Zurich,
2: (laughs) to be honest. And no, that was never an option. Yeah. Fair point. We will talk about the startup investing that you do uh, in in a minute Mm -hmm. or in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. But one thing you also mentioned was you got into real estate pretty early on. So. How do you actually become an investor in the first place? How did real estate attract you as an investor to put your money there? Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, my grandmother always invested
0: uh, in in like this typical uh, real estate with eight, 10 house uh, apartments in it. So she did that since, 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 since I was born. She always had these houses and she wanted to give cheap housing to, the, to their to to her employees. So it was nothing new for me. And my father was in the real estate business as well. And back when I started to invest, the prices were on, on another level, but also the, the mortgage rate, of course, was True. a bit higher. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, whenever I, I saved some money from my events or from my job, I invested that in real estate. I bought an apartment with my brother uh, where I could live in, which was also cheaper and I could save some money because I owned the apartment. True. And uh, maybe one one interesting story is about a big apartment. A big apartment house in in Alten. People usually don't really like Alten, but you, if you think about Alten, is half an hour away from Zurich, Basel, Bern, and Lucerne. So it's in yeah. the middle of basically everything in yeah. Switzerland. Uh, so there was this house which was on the market for quite some time and I went to look at it and then I found out it's a company, uh, a government-backed company who runs it, who helps addict- uh, people with, with addiction problems. So they have a restaurant below where they give cheap, fo- cheap food for them and give them a chance to interact with the employees of the, um, the aid organization. And also the office space was above that. Yeah. And I thought many investors didn't want to buy that because uh, you don't want to have a people with addiction problem in your houses. But it was a government-backed organization, excellently run, excellent uh, uh, employee. And I thought to myself, it's a beautiful house and it's it's backed with government. So why not? So we bought it and it was actually a super lucky punch because I, I, I go quite often to see how, how everything goes. And uh, when we bought it, they wanted to have... Uh, they asked us if we would re- renovate the top floor mm-hmm. and the roof because they need more office space. So for us, it was, again, a lucky punch. We said, yeah, of course, we we renovate that for you. And so we rebuilt the whole top floor and rented out for them for, for 10 years plus. So it was actually a, a, a good timing. And I didn't have any issues with uh, having addicted, uh, people with addiction problems in the house. Actually, it closed the circle. My grandmother sold alcohol. And now I own a house which helps people with addiction problems. So, it's a bit <laughs> I think it's Sorry. a nice story, actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's actually an impact house, if, 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 if you think so. I didn't buy it out of that reason, but it's, it ended up being in that way.
2: No, this is actually a good segue to your career. So here it seems that you, you did with your investing, you also did good. So you have this impact where you say, hey, I'm not only investing to actually have probably a return on, on my money, but I also support something with a good cause did that also sort of trigger you to to go further down that route? Or what, what impact did that house have on, on you as a person?
0: Well, I think I gained confidence because it was quite an old house and I gained confidence that it's not a big deal or doesn't have to be a big deal if you have a good architect and good, good handyman who help you rebuild that. Uh, but on the impact side, I used to work in the impact space before I bought that house. It was okay. in sixteen I bought the house
2: and that was, I'm working in the impact space since 2014. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I want to talk about. 2014, you actually joined Blue Orchard. And there, I actually just wonder, you know, Blue Orchard is a pioneering impact investor that was actually founded in 2008. Why did he decide in the first place to join the impact investing space?
0: Yeah, So Blue Orchard was actually founded in 2002, back in the UN. Uh, It's the other fund we're managing now, which is uh, in in 2008, uh, was founded in 2008. I like the idea, to be honest, I, I used to work with a colleague uh, who is now our partner, one of the partners at Julius Baer, and he quit the job from the traditional asset manager and he went to a turnaround case that we watched was back then. And he told me I was the only one who said, that's cool what you're doing, because I like the idea of the microfinance. I heard that back in my university, that idea with Yunus who founded that, uh, made, he made it popular, that idea. Um I thought that's a cool thing to work in, in in that space. So he said, "Why don't you join me in, in in that journey?" So I went to to work for Blue Orchard with him, and we it was a turnaround case. It only lose lost money uh, back then. Um, investors took to took, uh, re- redeem their money, and the performance was really bad. So we really had to do groundwork and start from scratch with that fund. And. Uh, it, now
2: it's, it's not a 200 million fund, now it's a two and a half billion fund, that, wow. that microfinance fund, yeah. But I mean, just, you know, thinking about your position, you had your real estate investments, you were organizing uh, cool events. You had probably a very well-paying job at Julius Baer So why did he switch? Because you could just have said, hey, I continue what I'm doing, I'm probably making a good amount of money. Why did you decide to switch and actually go into the risk also to work at the turnaround case?
0: Maybe that was also because the first com- uh, conversation I had at the lunch meeting with the other employee that I that I, I think I was in a position to be a risk taker because I had financially I was stable because of my real estate and my event right. business. So I didn't uh, need that stable anymore and, and I didn't grow as a person anymore. I okay. did it for five years. I traveled all over the place. I knew what it was. And it would just be repeat one year after the other because it was basically the same. Yeah. And the, it's not, the impact you can make as an employee is way smaller at the big traditional asset manager than if you are in a startup kind of environment, right. which Blue Orchard was back in
2: 2014, where, where I joined. Got it. And how did he then manage to the turn around? Like, what did he do to turn the company around that you didn't go bust?
0: Yeah. So there were actually two sides. One is you have to talk to investors that they're willing to invest in the fund. Then you have to disperse this money to microfinance institutions all over in the emerging markets. And the guy who was responsible for the disbursement of this loan is now a partner at the company. We will talk later, which I, which we founded last year, and. Uh, a colleague of mine, we basically did groundwork. So we went out, we had to explain investors what is microfinance, why does it make sense, how much we charge interest rate, how much they can earn, why is it uncorrelated, and so on. So it was really, really groundwork. And nobody knew me back then in Switzerland because I was responsible for other markets. Nobody knew microfinance. And the impact investing wasn't a topic at all. So we really started from scratch back then. Uh, but it was was good was a good learning it was tough at the beginning it was tough and now it's a, it, it's a different ball game now but uh, at the beginning it was really tough.
2: You, you basically did like three challenges, right? Nobody knew you, so no reputation. Uh, difficult topic or difficult investment topic and a turnaround case like th- that's three big challenges <laughs> in in just one company.
0: Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, well, it was a tough time, but I learned a lot. I mean, the learning curve was way steeper than if yeah. I would have stayed at Julius Baer, for sure. So there was. For me, to grow as a person, that, that was the best best decision to do because right. it, w-
2: it wasn't always just fun. Did you also have... I know you said you have your investments, your event business that actually gave you the financial stability, but did you have to cut back on some corners in terms of spending or life quality or lifestyle that you had?
0: No, because I mean, the, I, I, I earned a decent um, uh, salary. It was yeah. not like a investment banking salary, but it was decent. So I, I could... And my, yeah. my fixed costs were...
2: Super low back then yeah. because again, I didn't have a family. And so that helps. Yeah, that helps a lot. <laughs> True. And then you actually decided to start your own company, right? Uh, it's called Enabling Capital. You run the EMF Microfinance Fund. And before we dig deeper into that topic, I want to know you already mentioned a few types microcredits. Why are microcredits important in today's world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, microcredit is actually nothing else than the small loan you give to the shopkeeper, to the farmer, to the market lady or person in, in the emerging market. So it can be twenty, thirty, forty dollars. Mm-hmm. And already a small loan helps to uh, help the employees in the emerging markets to become financially independent and to help help to raise their living standard. So it's really a big big Im- impact you can make with small money. and That's impressive to see if, if you are on the on, on the ground and see what it really helps this money that's that's uh uh, so, so, super fulfilling to see. But it's not, we're not giving anything for free. So whenever yeah. we give a loan, we want to have something in return. So it's important that you teach the, the investor at uh, the micro entrepreneurs. you teach them, you know what a loan is, you know what it means to repay the loan. What is your yeah. business model? How you want to repay the loan? What you're doing if your business is not
2: running that well. So it's really a huge process before you actually disperse these loans. So the educational part there is equally as important as the actual loan itself. I think with every loan that you hand out, you also hand out entrepreneurial training. Can you talk a bit more about that and why that's an important side effect of, yeah. of your loan?
0: Uh, that's absolutely correct. So uh, currently we have more than 100,000 Entrepreneurs that we support with our fund, or wow. we do it in- indirectly. So we are not going to the micro entrepreneur itself. We give loans to microfinance institutions in emerging markets, okay. which you can think of as small banks like Raiffeisen 100 years ago. Yeah. So these are the typical small banks who go then to the micro entrepreneur and give them a the $20, 30 $40 do- dollar loan. Yeah. And whenever, before we disperse the loans to the microfinance institution, we do a due diligence with more than 100 checks. And a third of that is related to social impact. So how you treat the the clients, how you treat your employees, how much interest you charge, how you make sure that the the interest rate is paid and so on. So it's a huge process. And I once made fun to my my partner um, who is uh, responsible for dispersing these loans. And I told him, whenever you do a due diligence, you write 40, 50 page report before you decide to really disperse that loan. This is more than what I wrote at my thesis paper back at university. So it's really <laughs> super, super workload. But he's 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 right. He's saying he prefers to have the workload before dispersing loans than having to deal with...
2: Yeah. Um, money not being re- repaid because then the, the real workload starts. Yeah, I can imagine. In that regard, you also mentioned you're not handing anything out for free. Uh, so it's not like a donation or anything of that sort. It's like absolutely not that. But why is the, the loan part the more empowering or the better solution than just donating money yeah. through a charity, for example?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to judge. I don't think it's bad to donate money, but it's not our philosophy. So there is okay. a famous story with the fisherman. So you yeah. give a, man, a fisherman a fish and he can eat uh, one lunch or one dinner. If you teach him how to fish, he can feed his whole family and he can feed uh, himself for a way longer time than just for one, one yeah. dinner. So this is a bit of the philosophy. So there is nothing for free if we give a loan, but they get a lot, of, a lot in return because
2: we help them on their journey. Got it. And when you then actually invest, I know this is done through your partners, the the financial institutions in, in the respective countries, when you actually then invest in someone, do you invest in existing businesses or ideas or also just the people that say, hey, I have an idea, but I haven't actually executed anything? What's like the criteria there? Who actually gets the loan?
0: Uh, it's both. So we yeah. do the dil- due diligence on the microfinance institution and we check how they disperse loans, how financial stable they are, what the management is, what the future outlook look like, who are the shareholders of that uh, microfinance institution, yeah. how long are they already in the business and how much assets do they have and so on. And okay. within that, we also check how they disperse loans. So it's not that we tell them you're not allowed to give st- to a startup the the loan. Yeah. but at the end we do um, sample checks um right before we disperse the loans and we check how dispersal we take one out and mm-hmm. we go to this micro entrepreneur and check how is it treated, how much interest rate he's paying, and so on
2: to, to see how the bank is or the MFI is really um dispersing loans. yeah and these micro entrepreneurs that you're supporting there, they usually have a very hard time you know getting loans or credits from traditional banks. Why is that the case? Why is it so difficult for them to to get money from traditional financial institutions?
0: Usually the loans we're giving is twenty, fifty dollars uh, to a hundred dollars and the people we give loans to live in remote areas most often. Yeah. So and it's not worse for traditional bank to travel two hours to a place and to, to disperse $50 loans. Because whether you give $50 loans or 20000 the amount of work you have to do, the due diligence is the same. Yeah. So for them, it's not worth doing it. That's why you have specialized MFIs, microfinance institution who are, who are doing that and taking care of the entrepreneurs who fall out of the
2: traditional banking system. Got it. And you know, after all, you are still a fund. So you also need to generate returns for your investors. How do you do that, and is that actually justifiable to, you know, ask for interest rate uh, by handing out loans to to probably one of the poorest people in 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 on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a question I especially got a couple of years ago. Um, now there's a bit less
0: because people get more used to impact investing and microfinance mm-hmm. itself. Um, when I started back in 2014, I thought the investors are people who want to save the world, people who walk around in Birkenstock, the foundation, employees, these are the ones who invest. Right. What I found out is the people who are investing are pension funds, big banks, um, insurance companies, independent financial advisor, family offices, and so on. Yeah. Why are they investing? Because you get three to 4% above LIBOR in US dollar. You have no correlation and low volatility. So that was a perfect match for them because back then and still still is true today. You don't earn any money with typical real estate. The stock market is quite high, and quite, quite volatile. Uh, fixed income, you hardly earn any money. So you have to look for alternative, or uh, which is called Tino. There is no alternative. So we actually gave them an alternative, and that was also my sales approach. I didn't go to them and told them invest with us and we're going to save the world. I told them, look, we have an attractive alternative. For you as an investor, and you need to make return as a pension fund. You're obliged to make two percent return to right. give it back to the, the people from the pension fund. So um that's actually uh the, the, the trigger point to enter in the microfinance space the, the big allocations because we are not targeting the hundred, two hundred dollar investor. You can invest. Mm-hmm. But I mean if I talk with a pension fund then they invest five, ten, twenty. I just had last month a pension fund who invested twenty five million. That's of course, that's at more attractive to to grow as a fund. True. But going back to your question, is it fair to charge a loan and how much we charge? I mean, if you look at the value chain, the micro entrepreneurs in US dollar pays eight to twelve percent
2: for their loan, which yeah. is quite high.
0: It's quite high Especially in these Swiss markets. terms. Yeah. In Swiss terms, but if if if, if you look at the um, non collateralized uh, loan in Switzerland to buy a TV or whatever, no. um, it's Bit less, but it's in the same range. That's so, point. and you, you, sh- you, you should not forget we are in remote areas, and we have the banks. We give loans to the MFIs. Yeah. They have like a couple thousand employees who nothing else than giving loans to the micro entrepreneurs. So, yeah. it's time consuming. It's far away. It's it's costs intense, and but the empl- uh, the, the micro entrepreneurs they pay back more than ninety nine percent of their loans. So this is not the risk of wow. microfinance. So. Uh, but talking about the, lo- uh, the interest rate, it's 8 to 12 percent that they're paying to the microfinance institution, and we get roughly six and a half percent into the fund. Yeah. If you deduct the whole total expense ratio, which is management fee and all the other costs, yeah. you as an investor end up with four to five percent return. Yeah. So you see, microentrepreneurs pay eight to 12 percent, you end up with four to five percent. There is a lot missing in between, but sure. it's not a Bloomberg and two guys who are managing a fund. We have yeah. 20 employees, 22 now, and 16 of them do nothing else than dispersing loans to the microfinance institutions. These microfinance institutions have thousands of employees who take care of the microentrepreneurs. So it's really human capital intensive our, our business model. That's why the economies of scale are a bit less than having a traditional
2: equity fund with, again, two managers and, and, and the Bloomberg. Makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned that 99% of the loans actually get paid back. Why is that the case? Because that seems to be an incredibly high number that you probably wouldn't expect that high from the outside. So that's thanks to our um, selection process. So we make sure
0: that the MFIs, the microfinance institutions, do a thorough due diligence before the dispersal loans. And then... The guys who work at the microfinance institution who disperse loans, they're really social connect, and they know the microentrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So they go with in Cambodia, Cambodia with a tuk tuk to, to collect the interest rate and to teach them how to do business. So we're really close, or the, our partners are really close to the to the end clients. And it means they are trained uh, in, in, in a good way. They, uh, it's not too high of interest rate that they have to pay. And most often it's collateralized, which means if, if you want to buy a cow or a sheep as a farmer, then this is actually the collateral for, for that loan that makes it a bit cheaper than, than yeah. it would used to be. And don't forget, if, if you work with loan sharks in these countries, then interest rate of 100% plus is, is, is normal. So in these countries with high inflation, 8 to 12% is more than, than doable and, and, and accepted.
2: Wow. Well, so that's like a really good alternative that you're providing there. That's the goal of microfinance, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What geographies are you actually active in? I know you are active all over the world, basically, but what uh, you have any focus or what geographic areas are you actually uh, active in?
0: Yeah. So it's actually uh, all the emerging markets except uh, like the four or five typical ones, which is North Korea, we are not uh, South yeah. Sudan, Cuba. These are like the typical ones we are not or Central Afri- African Republic, something like that. Got it. Uh, but every, everything else is actually okay. Uh, we, we can disperse loans. We always check how political safe they are, how much interest rate is in general charge. Does it make sense? Can we bring in money and can we get it out again? So, But our market is all over
2: the emerging markets. Got it. And what's actually the smallest loan you've ever handed out? You, you mentioned $20, 50 or $100. What was like the really the smallest one that you ever did?
0: Yeah. So... I mean we disperse loans between two to five million to the microfinance institutions. Then they go and give the small loans. But there are more than one billion people in the world with that live off than less than two dollars a day. Okay. And you have to have certain um business orientation that we can give you a loan. So I guess the smallest will be twenty twenty bucks okay. plus. And what's the biggest you did? Uh, that is still considered microfinance. You cannot give more than twenty, thirty thousand uh, 30000 dollars. Otherwise, uh, yeah. it's not considered microfinance anymore. Makes it's sense. SME uh, finance, which is also a good thing, which can also make sense because not, not everybody want to be an, an uh, entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Some prefer to be employees. And if you have a SME, then that's sure. also
2: good for the economy and the yeah. people. Uh, one thing that we saw when we did our research, I'm not sure if that's true, so please correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, but often your loans are also given out to groups, not only individuals. Why, why is that the case? Yeah.
0: Uh, it's it's actually beneficial for both because you only have to one due diligence and for the groups it's uh, less interest rate and they they basically guarantee for each other. So, okay. uh, for example, you were once in Kenya and then you have a, a hairdresser, you have a cab driver, cabs in Kenya are the, the motorbikes and you just sit behind and this this is a cab. Okay. You have the a lady who's selling clothes for for babies and two other guys uh, which I can't remember what what they did but they put themselves together into a group and went to the microfinance institution to to get a loan. And this is always a good start. And once they prove that they could get a loan by themselves, then they can reapply for for another loan.
2: It's actually a good start uh, into the microfinance world. It's like a multi-step process, if you want to call it that way, right? Correct. We also did, uh, saw with the research, that the demand for microloans totals about 250 billion US dollars but currently this is by no means matched by the supply of it. Like, is this actually a good or a bad thing that the demand for the micro loans is so much higher than the actual supply? Do you see a big chance to expand your your operations, your fund, or is there actually a big challenge that you face there? Um, both. So, I mean, if, if you look at Switzerland as a
0: microfinance hub, there is rather roughly, um, the whole microfinance market is roughly 15 billion with funds like EMF, like Enabling Microfinance Fund. And a third of that is managed out of Switzerland. So Switzerland is, is a big hub for that. Mm-hmm. And we can invest in, or worldwide, there are roughly 10,000 so-called microfinance institutions. But attractive for us uh, are roughly 300. This means uh, a track record of a couple of years, a certain amount of assets, external audited accounts, um, s- uh, some some social performance they have to fulfill and so on. So our target market is th- roughly 300. Um, and once, it can also be that they grow out of our market because they become too too big for us and they're not willing to give us 6.5%. If they can refinance themselves in the global market for 2 3%, then they don't right. need us anymore, which is a good thing as well. Um, so our market is capped at... The, I think you cannot... Be over a certain size as a fund, because otherwise you have to give loans to big banks, which are not doing microfinance or just too small part microfinance. Yeah. And our typical, as I said, loan is two to five million. These are typical banks with maybe hundred, three, four, five hundred dollar million dollars of assets, yeah. and that limits a bit what 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 you can do. But going talking again about the example in Cuba, if Cuba opens up. And the first guys who go in are the the churches, the foundations, the development banks. Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau in Germany, KfW. It's a huge company. They're the first one who go in, mm-hmm. who teach them, who who helps uh, build up the the microfinance institutions. And usually the, the interest rate that is charged back then is really high. And as more prof- profitable they get, as more experience they have, as more um, uh, experience they have, then the loan interest rate goes down. And the loan size goes up, and after a couple of years, we are willing to go into into that market.
2: Got it. But in that regard, that also seems to be a temporary thing, because ideally, you enable them to then you know grow bigger and bigger, and then eventually they become too big for you one day.
0: Exactly, which is a good thing. I mean, Raifa was a microfinance bank. It supported the farmers to to buy another cow. Microfinance. Uh, Switzerland was actually a microfinance market. Bank of America Merrill Lynch was a microfinance bank. They had the earthquake in San Francisco and then an Italian guy went went there and helped the small shops with small loans so that they can restart their business. So it's not a new idea, microfinance, and it's actually a good thing. Rifin Ra- is not doing microfinance anymore. They do everything right. else. But this is also um, a development process which is which we're happy to see. But there's still enough um, microfinance institutions around who are... Wanting us to 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 give to disperse loans to them, so we don't have an issue yet. We are now 215 million in size. We grow quite heavily within one year from 85 to 215 million, and we don't have an issue
2: dispersing these loans at all. But do you think that this will become eventually a challenge in the future that you do need to find other you know investments or business models to to work on? Yes, absolutely. I think the the size, the way we understand microfinance, the way we manage the fund or we want
0: to manage the fund going forward is. Uh, is capped at seven, eight 800 million assets, maybe 1 billion. But more than that, we cannot really grow the way we want to do microfinance. Then we go into the SME part, which is not microfinance anymore, but also interesting, of course. Yeah. Uh, we do have other mandates. One is from the UN, uh, the, the European Union and the African Development Bank, which is supporting people in Africa with clean cooking solutions. This is a 50 million mandate we just won, and we will be live uh, next month. Nice. But it's a big challenge to find out another an good idea, next extra microfinance, the next big thing. It's really hard to find. And, and to be honest, all the companies I uh, look or, or, or I observe, they didn't really find the next big thing. They're all, to say, a yeah. bit a bit harsh as one trick pony, which to have one big, big fund and then some other small funds on the side. Okay. This is also a challenge for us because we don't want to have a, f- a forest full of bonsai trees. You don't want to have that. You want to have... Sure two or three big bigger funds. So, but we are working on some concept, but it's, uh, it's a challenge. It's
2: a challenge to find the next big thing in impact investing. So we're, we're curious to uh, observe what, <laughs> are you, what you're actually cooking up next in that regard.
1: Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that's starting a company involved from the first consultation all the way to the commercial register. Newco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit newco.ch Swisspreneur. Again, that's newco.ch Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show.
2: I also wonder, you know, now we, we got a very good picture about why microloans are important and how you actually execute them with your partners all over the world. I just wonder, do you have any favorite success story that you actually saw or actually enabled throughout the years? hmm yeah, I mean, uh, we we disperse hundred thousand loans, and basically all who repay the
0: loan are success stories. But there are yeah. there are cool stories like the farmer who who got like the twenty dollar loan to 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 buy additional uh, crops or rice or whatever it was, and. Then he, he grew bigger. He he got another uh, loan, couple hundred dollars. He was able to hire new employees, uh, news, new new uh, cows. He, he added the whole the whole farm, and he grew thanks to the credit we give them. He he we he grew to a small and medium enterprise, which is always a nice success factor to yeah. see. Or if if you see that uh, women are successful with their business and can help bring their kids to school, help them uh, to raise them in a better environment. I mean, this is this these are brilliant stories, and we have thousands of thousands of them we also uh, publish some of them on a monthly
2: basis to to give a better feeling for for the investors uh, cool i think this is really entrepreneurship at its best to really understand the power uh, that entrepreneurship can have in accounting for a person on an individual level
0: absolutely uh, that's also fulfilling that's also why we don't have any issues hiring new people because they know they want, don't want just earn money they also want to have some impact which we can give them more more than enough so absolutely that's why we don't uh we don't really need to look for new investors and uh, for new employees. Uh, good thing we, we, we got approached by really good yeah. talent. They find you. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in some cases or are or, or referred from other colleagues, but we have an, we have offices all over the world. Uh, we have one in Pakistan. We have one in Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek. We have one in Nairobi, in Kenya, and we have in Ecuador, in Quito, we have offices yeah. and then of course in Zurich and Geneva. But the heart of the company is in the emerging markets. These are the guys right. who know, the, who feel the pulse there, who, who disperse the loans. They are the, the the most relevant employees we have, of course. We are ju- just represent the company towards the investors in Switzerland. But the hard work, the tough
2: disbursement job, is done in the emerging markets. Got it. I would also like to talk about the challenges, you know, of launching your own company. The first thing to start, we already heard it. You actually started with the team that you got to know at Blue Orchard. And I just wonder, was that a a good or a bad setup for you? You know, working with people that you already knew for probably years, uh, worked with them together. How did that happen? In in retrospect, was that a a good setup for you?
0: Yeah. So roughly half of the employees we currently have used to work together at the previous uh, employee. but it came actually by the other direction. So the fund approached us, the enabling microfinance fund, didn't really grow in size and didn't really have a good setup and a good performance. Uh, that's why they approached us and asked us if we want to help them to improve that structure. Okay. And I told them, we, ha- we we can do, but we need to change a lot. And I would suggest we do our own company and manage the fund. Yeah. And then. They kind of uh, li- like the idea quite, quite from from the start. So we teamed up again with with the guys who who managed the whole uh, turnaround back at at, at Blue Orchard. Mm-hmm. So they were already uh, up. Uh, up, up and on fire for for that idea, so we didn't really have a, a challenge to 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 build the the core team mm-hmm. and we even had employees joining before we even had the company so they <laughs> were already wi- willing to to join the, the the journey with us because one of the partners Chuck who is responsible for the disbursement of the loans he used to he's in the business for twenty years he's like the I think he's, I, I can say that because it's not myself. He has probably the best tracker you can have in disbursing loans in emerging markets. And he is really into details. That's why I could not work for him because I'm not into the de- details like he is. <laughs> but uh, he has many uh, colleagues who work with him for, for five plus years. So they know right. how he
2: is and how into detail he is. And
0: it works, works actually excellent with him.
2: And you also mentioned that you actually took over the existing EMF fund instead of starting your own. Why was that the right setup? Because you could also just say, hey, we actually start our very own fund and do that from scratch. Why was it better to actually take over an existing fund instead? So um, if you start microfinance fund, then you need
0: at least $50 And to find a seed investor who's willing to give 50 million that you have as, uh, a reasonable diversification across MFIs and across countries, that's really hard. Yeah. So it was actually an easy decision for us that, that, that we work with an existing fund, which has an excellent uh, track record, excellent investors. Hilti family, for example, is involved in Liechtenstein or the, the Prince, even with the Medicore Foundation, are involved. So it was way easier for us to, to do it that way and uh, it w- was a perfect combination because it worked quite nicely together otherwise we, we could not grow from 85 million to 215 within 1 year as a startup yeah. because usually before institutional investors invest they want to see 100 million assets 3 year track record and we didn't have both of that And we're still able to grow. Of of course, we know the client and investors since since a long time. So it was not a big issue for us to contact
2: them again. So in that regard, it really is the early days from a fund's perspective that are probably the most difficult ones because of the missing track record, the missing funds, basically. Yeah. That's Absolutely, the biggest uh, challenge.
0: Yeah, because you start with small tickets, as we call it, with uh, 10, 100,000, but it, then it's hard to grow. If you want to have the big tickets, like the big pension fund, with 10, 20 million uh, tickets or inflow uh, or investments, then you need to have a certain size because investors don't want to own more than 10 or 20% of the fund. True. And we all, all already had investors who are so big that they said, we're not doing anything below 50 million because it's not reasonable for them yeah. to overlook too small investments. So and
2: for them, we are not attractive yet. We need to grow much yeah. farther that they are willing to invest. Makes sense. You also mentioned that First, you really had to educate the market about impact investing. And um, this certainly changed these days because now, instead of the challenges that you faced in the early days with having to educate the market, now it seems that almost everyone, every financial institution is offering some sort of impact investing solutions. How do you actually differentiate yourself in a more and more crowded market? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a it's difference if you do something because you believe it makes sense or if
0: you do it because you think the investors want to have it. So we really impact investing at its core is microfinance. You cannot have more impact than than with microfinance. And if you do top down and you say I I invest in the SMI minus the bad ones with tobacco or wh- wh- whatever, this is not micro. This is not impact for me. So, um, we we don't do the sales approach and telling them, hey, look, we do impact. We come from another side, and the, most of the investors are already familiar with microfinance. So we don't really. Good thing we did the education a couple of years ago, six, six seven years ago, mm-hmm. uh, but now you don't really have to do too much education anymore. With certain clients you still have, but uh, most of them are already familiar with with, with the topic. Makes sense. Mm-hmm.
2: And in, in, in what way can you actually you know show people that you are doing the real impact investing? Can can I smell that or see the spark in your eyes that you really meet and have the, the experience? Because if, if big banks uh, were there are many in Switzerland, just go to an institutional investor and say, now we also do impact investing. How do you win them over as investors versus the big banks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, inherited in our, or implied in our uh,
0: due diligence process is one third of the questions are related to social impact. Then we also report that. Okay. So we report how many micro entrepreneurs we have, how much is the average um, loan we disperse, how much is the median loan, how many females we have, how many... Uh, f- um, Entrepreneurs are in rural areas, so we report it on a monthly basis, we do once a year, we do um, a social impact report, which will be produced in the next couple of weeks or months, so where we really show what we do, how we do it, why it has impact. And two other things we do, um, it's not the idea that I tell you what we do, we want the investors to know by themselves and to see by themselves. Since we cannot travel at the moment, we do webinars. We always have CEOs from from MFIs or microfinance institutions joining. And we want investors to ask questions. They can ask all the questions they want. It's not that that, that we filter the questions. They can really ask whatever they want. And what we plan to do as soon as everything opens up is doing field trips, which means we... Bring the investors along, go to the emerging markets and show them on the ground what we do. They should see with their own eyes what we do. They should ask questions to the micro-entrepreneurs. They should ask them how you repay the loan, how much interest rate you pay. So bringing them along to, on the journey and, and involving them more is also helping us in, in, in showing our what, what, what we do. Because it's different if you see it with your own eyes
2: and then if I tell you what we do. True. In that regard, you also have many different stakeholders that you actually have to, you know, make happy. You have four partners, you have family offices and also funds in the background that all want to get informed and some also want to have a say about what's happening. So how do you actually manage the different stakeholders? Because that's quite a few people or organizations to take care of. It actually sounds more complicated if if you say like that, (laughs) but it's
0: true. (laughs) We do have different shareholders, but the good thing is we're all aligned. I mean if you team up with a new team then you always have to find your role within that team and that was done i mean we, we started that process more than two years ago um that, that was already done i think we all have the same vision the same mission we know what we're doing we know where we want to be in five years the mm-hmm. funds are aligned um so that that's actually that's also the reason why many employees want to join us because they believe in our mission they believe in our vision which is um which is helpful in attracting new talents and and to work to, together with, with the colleagues. And the good thing is, one colleague and myself, we are responsible for the investor side and two other partners are responsible for the disbursement side. So in a day-to-day job, we have to make sure that whenever money comes in, that we have enough pipeline to disperse the loans to the MFIs, which is right. sometimes reflecting a bit high liquidity because it's it needs three to six months to really disperse from the first contact to dispersing loans, three to six months. Okay. And sometimes you have big inflows which need once or two months to be dispersed again. Yep. So we meet on a on on a or uh, uh, of course not not meeting, but with Zoom calls we we see each other on on a weekly basis. We're in contact with WhatsApp and and on on a
2: daily basis. Of course that that works that works well. And how long does it actually take to then generate a payout? Of course, you get your interest rate on a regular basis, mm-hmm. but how long do the loans usually last? Yeah.
0: So when we disperse loans, we uh, give them a credit uh, loan for three years, but we want to have repaid it uh, for one uh, third of the one year, the okay. second third of the, of the two years. So it's always, yeah. it's so- so-called amortizing loans, which is uh, good for us for liquidity-wise mm-hmm. because we can either renew the loan or give a new loan to another MFIs or repay it right. to the investors if they want to have the money back from the, yeah. from, from the fund because um, you really have to take care that it's not a liquidity mismatch because we offer the investors liquidity from one to three months when they redeem mm-hmm. and we disperse loans for three months, eh, for three years. So you have to manage that liquidity. That's why we have always 10% cash, maybe 25% within the next six, seven months is
2: going to be repaid into the fund. And we also have a credit line from our custodian bank. Got it. And one last challenge that I want to address is, of course, COVID. It hit all over the world, obviously also in your active markets. But surprisingly, in the prep call, you mentioned to me that you know, these ecosystems, they are way more resilient because there is always a crisis. Mm-hmm. So what impact did COVID actually have on your business?
0: Yeah. It's actually funny, when I started at after university at Julius Baer, there was a Lehman Brothers crisis. And now when we started with enabling capital, there was a COVID crisis. There is, there is no chance that, that you could foresee that, of course.
2: So whenever you will start the next company, <laughs> it will be the third crisis, right? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
0: Um, how we address that challenge. So the good thing is we received uh, most of the fund in cash. So we could disperse loans in a post-COVID shock environment. So we could see how politicians react, which countries are, are hit harder than others. And that's why also we disperse loans, not in, uh, in urban areas, but more in rural areas, because they tend to be less affected by the COVID crisis. Yeah. And if you think about the emerging markets, crisis is absolutely normal for them. They have everyday crisis They have to, to to struggle every day. They have like uh, floods. They have uh, dry season. They have SARS or whatever the, the illnesses are, or the viruses. Um, so it's not. They're used. They're way more resilient than we are in in, in the Western world. And the good good thing is actually that there it's a young population, mm-hmm. um, and we learned that young population um, are less affected by the COVID crisis. It is a challenge for us, of course. We have to take measurements uh, to take care of that. But uh, I think I prefer to be in emerging markets than in Western parts
2: with with a crisis, to to be honest. You know, that's very interesting for me because when you mentioned that, you know, they regularly have crisis that they face. It makes them way more resilient. They pay back 99% of the loans. Does that resilience also make them better entrepreneurs? Yes, 100%. um,
0: Because as an entrepreneur, you have to get used to crises. There is always something unexpected happening and you have to struggle through some difficulties and they're they're used to that. So they're way more prepared to become an entrepreneur, yes. You
2: know, here in Switzerland, we are pretty comfortable, right? We have good jobs, well-paying jobs. Uh, We are probably not that resilient because there are not that many crises here uh, that we face. So... What can we actually learn from the, the countries that you operate in, from the re- more resilient entrepreneurs from abroad? Any learnings or lessons that we can apply here to, to our entrepreneurial lives? Yeah, I think being a bit more
0: relaxed and not thinking too much about the future, a bit okay. think a bit more about, about now than what could eventually happen in the future, because you can anyways not manage the future. You have to be prepared for the worst, but expect the the, the best, of course. But um, I think we we can learn a lot from resilient and the mindset. Uh, I
2: I would say. In what way the mindset?
0: Yeah, dealing with struggle with difficulties and struggles, and and, and not just um, getting nervous if something bad happens, or or getting into depression if something not the way you want it, want it to to be. Act more. Um, take take the situation as it is and make the best out of it. I would say this is probably what we can learn.
2: So to a certain degree. Don't think about the perfect plan, but be more adaptable and just cor- course correct as you go, basically.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Fully agree. Uh, yeah. Fully agree.
2: Nice. Let's also talk about your current success and the future plans. You mentioned you hit the 215 million US dollar uh, assets under management. That's a steep growth. I remember still reading some research where you said the goal is to go to 100 and mm-hmm. now you actually more than doubled that. So congratulations on that milestone. Thank you. What's next for you and Enabling Capital? What do you have planned?
0: Uh, I mean, we still want to do our mission, which is moving money to meaning. We will, will co- want to continue that. Uh, once we grow, we need to hire more more staff. And that's always a challenging. As I said, we have offices all over the world. Uh, the goal is to grow with that fund within the next couple of years to $800 million to a billion. And also to find other good investments. We want to work together with DFI, Development Finance Institution, like mm-hmm. World Bank or... Um, African Development Bank, KFW and so on, but we also want to have other funds that we could um, grow to a reasonable size and do impact, of course.
2: And you know, um, some friends of ours, Sedik Waldburger, for example, mm-hmm. he's very bullish on the decentralized finance topics. In what way do like cryptocurrencies and other decentralized finance uh, solutions play a role in, in your future? Two
0: things. So one, we actually are looking into. One investor want to have uh, tokenized. They want to invest with tokens into our fund, which which right. which you can of course do if it's regulatory uh, doable. Sure. But the other interesting thing is um, in uh, when it goes to technological advance, uh, or they're way more advanced than we are in emerging markets. For example, this Twint or this Apple Pay which we now think it's super, super cool and new. It's in Africa, in, in Kenya, they do that since since years, <laughs> since more than 10 years, it's with M-Pesa. And more than half of the, the, the turnover on, 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 in, in a yearly basis is done via M-Pesa and you can pay everything. And it's not with the, with the Apple iPhones or the Samsung yeah. we have, it's with the old cell phones. So uh, repayment is, is done with the cell phone, uh, interest rate payment and so on. Everything is done with that and also the it helps us technical improvements help us to make it cheaper because if you don't have to do all the paperwork if you do it electronically you go to the to the field to the farmer with i don't know with 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 an ipad or whatever you have mobile device and you, you can fill out everything you need and you can show him what it means it's way easier so it helps us to bring down the cost of of the dispersing of these loans
2: Great. So we also will see some innovation there, or some more innovation. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So fintech is, is a is a big is a big thing there. It was actually born out of uh, out, out of out of or it was born because they didn't have any other solutions to do. So actually, a, in a bad situation, made something good out of it. Right. Because yeah. we didn't really need, um, we didn't really need M-Peso in Switzerland or, or Twint. It helps, but we, we had all the banking sure.
2: system before. But they basically jump
0: the banking system and okay. get directly to the mobile payment.
2: For me, this is again really entrepreneurship at its best. Mm-hmm. You have a need, there's a big problem, and then you need a solution, and that's where entrepreneurship comes yes, in. Yes, absolutely, it's yeah. beautiful. Now, we we talked about your real estate investments. We deeply talked about microloans. And of course, we also want to learn more about your startup investments. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it in the beginning, you are active as a startup investor uh, since a few years. For example, you invested in Amorana, uh, which probably turned out pretty well for you (laughs) from the investor perspective. Why did you actually decide to invest in startups in the first place?
0: Yeah. Um, I like to be surrounded by uh, interesting people. So I I think... you as a person make up the average of the five people you spend most time with. And if I, if I talk with investors, I mean, most of them are, or I would say all of them are way smarter than me, more hardworking than me. And I can learn a lot from, from them. Um, and whenever I invested in startups, it was, I think the success factor is timing, team, and then um, idea. Timing is hard to judge. But team, you can judge. Right. And I remember when Alan and Lucas approached me with Amarana, I didn't think that it's the best idea I ever heard, but I like these two guys and they were super compliment to each other. And it obviously turned out quite nicely, uh, the, the investment. So, but I also invested in startups that that, that went bankrupt. So
2: the, you always have
0: the, the success stories and, and the failures next to it.
2: How do you actually deal with these losses? Because that's obviously part of being a startup investor, but I can imagine when you actually go through a loss and the company goes bankrupt, that this still is or can be a bigger challenge emotionally than you first thought because you're actually losing money.
0: Yeah, it's actually a bad thing. As, as
2: Humankind is always more focused on the bad thing than on the, on the
0: good thing, which is yeah. true. Uh, but the funny thing is that investment that went bankrupt, uh, he's still a friend of mine. He's a good friend of mine. And I just rent, we have want to change an apartment and then I rent apartments from, from him. So I'm still in nice. contact with him. I mean, at the end, it's it's risky money. It is. You do 10 investments, eight doesn't, uh, seven don't work out, two okay,
2: and one hopefully takes off. So that's part of the game. What's important there? Because I can imagine you can end an investment or end a company in a good way, but also in a bad way. So you're still friends, you're still in touch. What did that entrepreneur do particularly well to to make a good ending possible? Uh, It's easy to answer. Uh, It's communication.
0: It's always communication. The most issue happens, lack of communication. Uh, so he came to me when the company was in struggle because the core team left and he told me everything in a transparent way. So, yeah, I think he made an excellent communication. Uh, yeah. That's why I didn't. I mean, of course, I, I tease him with that with that loss. But <laughs> it's also important if you invest, don't invest all the money into one startup. I always invest smaller amounts, Um that, that I can diversify my, my investments.
2: It's yeah. ne- 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 never big money and that that I need for, for living. Sure. And why do you actually decide to invest alone and not through a fund or a business angel club? Uh, because I like to be involved more closely to,
0: to the ideas. I like to. I like the exchange with the investors, and I want to be the decision maker, not the decision taker. Mm-hmm. And most often, you have lock-up periods. And but I mean, I'm, I am invested in, in in one fund actually from Partners Group. I just invested okay. in a in a fund which I think they do a good business. It's super expensive, yeah. but I think they do a good business. But I like to have the exchange with these guys. That's why I also joined the another organization just recently. Um, I want to hear the stories from them
2: want to get first-hand information. That makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned team is the most important part that you focus on on these early-stage investments. But I also wonder, are there any trends or topics that you are especially bullish on for the future, for future investments also? Uh, that's funny because I, I build up trust in, in the
0: Omarana founders and they approach me with new ideas. And that's why I'm, I'm quite fast with uh, entering new ideas with them. For example, we just invested in DFINITY. Uh, internet computer uh, thanks to an investment idea of one of these guys Mm -hmm. so um, and I want to force myself to look into these topics more that's why I want to invest because sometimes it's too complicated for me and I want to focus and and learn more about what what, what it is Um, but more trends that I missed no I just whenever something interesting comes up to me then
2: the trends find you basically To a certain degree. To a certain degree, yes, yes. That's a good position. But I mean, I'm
0: not an interesting because I do really small tickets. I'm not really interested in uh, VC or whatever. I do like more. uh, More me too investments. Right. If I join others who, who do it as well.
2: Makes sense. So now to wrap up, we always ask our guests about their favorite resources and gadgets. So do you have any resources like blogs, podcasts, or other things that you can share with our audience or recommend to our listeners?
0: Yes. um, I just became second time father a couple um, months ago, actually in last September, so I don't really have time to read. But I like to listen to podcasts whenever I, I go running or so. So I have one is actually the Happiness Lab from Dr. Laurie Sanders, which I like to listen to a lot. Which also talks about the philosophy of ancient Greece. Uh, philosophers, super interesting. Nice. Um, what I like as well is Business Wars from Wandery. You might have mm-hmm. heard of that. The yes. fight Pepsi against Coke and stuff. Yes. Super interesting as well. And I like to listen to stuff from Naval Ramikant, for example. And one guy who can explain complicated stuff super easy is Yuval Noah Harari. I mean, he's he's a brilliant. He's brilliant. I love listening to him. Cool. But talking about gadgets, I prefer having less gadgets than uh, because. I spend so much time, I waste so much time with my cell phone just looking at, yeah. I don't know, browsing stupid things. Um, I prefer less. I would actually prefer a Handy without a, a screen, with the old school Nokia again, where yeah. you can only make phone calls. <laughs> it's cool. You don't have to charge it for days. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that's that's true. That's why many micro-entrepreneurs actually still have these old phones because they work right. excellent yeah. in these markets. And again, you don't have to charge it because charging phones in remote areas is also a challenge. Yeah. You need to have like solar panels or um, one shop who is charging that you can recharge your, exactly. your
2: phone. And now for the very last part, we have some rapid-fire questions for you. Mm-hmm. I either give you a, a choice of two or three options or a short question and you can answer in one sentence. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you a micro or a cope kid?
0: Uh, actually, as a kid, I went more often to the micro, but now I prefer cope. Why? It's more convenient. I like what they have. I get used to to their uh, offerings, and
2: it's closer. Got it. What's your favorite investment? Uh, Navy capital, of course. And where do you go to think?
0: I like to go to the mountains. Uh, my parents have an apartment in in Ingelberg,
2: in so I like to go there. Uh, Nice. To be a bit remote, big impact with no return on investment or small impact with big return on investment uh both <laughs> you had to say it that's clear, uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. that's actually what you're doing exactly. How many hours of sleep
0: did you get last night again i it just became second time father, so it's a bit uh-huh. challenging, but uh I tried to go to bed early, so I got what was it last last night? Was still seven to eight hours with some uh, breaks in between to give a shop to to my little boy.
2: <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, number, I would say, Absolutely. for that phase Absolutely. of your of your life. Yeah. Um, crypto, stocks, or micro loans? Um, I think a combination of all the three. I would say, yeah. And if you had to make one other choice, startup or microloan investments? Uh, again, uh, both. I think I think it makes sense to, to be involved in both. Perfect. So these were all my questions for today, Roger. Thank you so much for stopping by and for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking to you. And we wish you all the best for the future with your family, your growing family, and of course, also in uh, enabling capital. Thanks a lot. Thanks,
1: This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's Clara. Ch.